0: Jesus, we bless you, Lord, for this incredible opportunity to worship, to gather with you and with one another, to become aware of your presence here in this place and amongst us in this community. And we ask right now, Jesus, that you just give us a moment to settle ourselves, ground ourselves in the awareness of your presence um, and in this community. Jesus, you call each one of us beloved and you long to be in relationship with each one of us and we are deeply grateful for that privilege and that call and we ask that you tune our hearts to yours, open up our ears, open our eyes to you and to your truth and give us the resiliency we need to be able to walk out this faith with you in this world today. We thank you for all of this, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, y'all, we continue to be in our teaching on Romans, and I'll be honest, it's daunting. Um, I really like narrative. Once upon a time, really good with narrative. Can hang out with that for a long time. I have a very, very detailed and active some might say overactive imagination, uh, prevents me from being able to watch a lot of movies because it just stays with me for way too long. Um, And last night I fell asleep actually listening to some podcasts with N.T. Wright teaching on Romans, so I dreamt that I was a student in his class and really unprepared. So that's all here in the room, um, and all of that imagination comes to pass. Our first introduction to our Roman study, I preached just two weeks ago, and we called it not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we talked about how for a lot of us, even that phrasing feels very bumper sticker Christianity and can cause in many of us um, a hearkening back to days of simpler faith where maybe we were blissfully unaware, ignorant of some of the complexities of the world or even of our text. And so we kind of wrestled through that, but I was hoping at the end we were landing on, actually, we don't have to be ashamed of this good news Paul is proclaiming. But many of you, as we kind of talked through what was that good news and how Christ is the fulfillment of all these covenant promises, and it's a universal promise for all, many of you kind of slightly called me out for the fact that I stopped short of some difficult verses. Because that's not the spark way. So the next week, some of you were also disappointed that we just jumped right to the conclusion of Romans. We got all the way, Pastor Kevin just jumped on up and did Romans 16 and tried to explain to us who is in the room. And the point was that in the letter to Rome, Paul is writing to all. Jews and Gentiles, with the understanding that in Christ something new has happened. A new family has been created, and it is, again, the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to Israel. And so Kevin did a great job giving us where we're going. We need to know where the end of the story is because so many of us get bogged down in small clips and phrases and one verse off, maybe one out of a chapter, let's say four verses strung together that are disassociated from one another, and we make roads out of them and huge theologies. And so we kind of talked about how we at least need to know what is Paul's overarching theme and where is he going to try to end up. So Kevin did the in conclusion. But when we sat down, he and I, trying to sort out how do we want to break apart Romans, we've both said it's so hard to do. Because, and this is Kevin's illustration to me this week, Paul's doing this. Da 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 like you, you, no, then you and this and this. And because he's going back and forth so it was a nice move you did a little dance move. Don't act like you didn't do it, Paul's doing this back and forth. Um, It was very, I resonate with it. And so I don't know if you you guys many probably familiar with the Bible Project and their fantastic videos they put up. And I'm always jealous of how they get all of it onto one page, right? So I'm going to try to do all of Romans. I'm just joking. I'm not going to do that at all. But they've divided up, as most scholars do, with Romans 1 through 4 and 5 through 8 and 9 through 11 and then 12 through 16. But we really still need to try to wrap our arms around Paul's full argument. Because otherwise we get really bogged down in passages that can sound super difficult and painful and hard when they're pulled out of context but because this is the sparky way I am going to pick up in Romans 1.18 and I am going to read a bunch of text rather quickly because for the sake of time and your attention span and all of those things go home and we were joking if we could just give everybody a chance go read Romans 1 through 16 then we'll come talk right or a master's class on Romans 16 then we can break apart the little bits We'll try to do some today. For the wrath of God, Paul writes, after he's not ashamed of the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice for those who by their injustice suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things God has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless hearts Were darkened. Paul, by the way, is grabbing hold of a lot of rabbinic conversation and discussion about how do we know that there's evidence of God in the world? And they would argue, and the rabbi said often, the mere creation argues for the creator. You can't, and, and Rabbi Akiva would say it this way like, come and prove to me that God exists. And he would say, Your clothing, how do I know? that it was made, and they're like, well, obviously a tailor made it, and So, so too it is creation, right? Creation itself calls out that it's been fashioned and made. So this is a little bit of the argument that Paul is coming into regarding all of humanity, specifically the Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish, that ever since the creation of the world, we have been knowing that there is a creator. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. That's the whole of the world of the Hebrew Scriptures that Paul has been in, as well as the Greco-Roman world that he's in this day. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural, natural intercourse for unnatural. In the same way, also the males giving up natural intercourse with females were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Don't worry, we'll get there. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind and to do things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of injustice, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they do not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. By the way, notice how often uh, people who want to use verses to uh, judge other people pull out, you know, haughty, boastful, and rebellious towards parents. Okay, Romans two continues. Therefore, Paul says. You are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. That long list Paul just gave, everybody's guilty. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." He will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life while for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth, but injustice, there will be wrath and fury. There will be affliction and distress for everyone who does evil, both the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, both the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality. That's going to be a key line. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged in accordance with the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight but the doers of the law who will be justified when Gentiles who do not possess the law, by nature do what the law requires. These, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires, what Torah requires, is written on their hearts, as their own conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God through Christ Jesus judges the secret thoughts of all. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relationship to God and relation to God and know his will and determine what really matters because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, will you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by your transgression of the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Who is he talking to there? The Torah-keeping Jewish community, right? And we talked about this in the last couple weeks, that sometimes Paul is talking to the Jews Jewish believers in Rome, and sometimes he's talking to the Gentile believers in Rome, and I think in just these two chapters, we've heard already, maybe when he's switching, his code switching in that moment. Circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That's a lot of circumcised in the right, right? But if the Gentiles keep the requirements of the Torah, will not their ungentileness be regarded as Jewishness, right? Then the physically uncircumcised person who keeps the law will judge you, who though having written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For a person is not a Jew, Who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the written code. Such a person receives praise not from humans, but from God. And we'll stop there for the sake of time, but go home and keep reading all the way through four. The title of this message is Written on Our Hearts. Now, if you'll notice, what Paul just did in that whole big long section, what he'll continue to do, is talk about how both Gentile believers in Rome and Jewish believers in Rome know what's right. That it is written on the hearts of the Gentiles, whether they knew it or not, it is evident they know that there's a creator and they are going to be held accountable for this knowledge. All creation cries out that there is a God. And that for the Jewish believer, they also are responsible. They have the Torah and they know so the first four chapters that Paul's going to give us are not about how we're all sinners, even though that was a very long list. The first four chapters are about how God's world is spoiled by humans, and God has a covenantal answer to the problem, and that both Jews and Gentiles need a savior. So let's talk really quick part of what Paul is doing here, and we'll do throughout the whole letter, is he's going to be commenting on Israel's story. And some of what he's going to be trying to get us to do is remember Genesis. Remember there was a sneaky snake. Remember that after that sneaky snake, there was sin, murder, death, fratricide, pain. There's Nephilim, which is a very weird thing that happens between angels and humans and unnatural relations. And there's wicked humanity. God's like, all right, that's it. Everybody's wicked, gonna have to wipe this place off. Humanity. God's weeping for the fact that he's created the world. He destroys the world with flood, rebaptizes, recreates the earth, brings it back. And then right after, Noah follows those commands. All right, fruitful and multiply. Then there's a drunken naked thing that happens, very bad. And then we'll have the Tower of Babel. That's a hard mess. And so eventually all of this leads us to the deep need for Abraham, which Paul's gonna get to. So all of this is to remind us that when this story started, sin entered the world, and it's been a mess ever since. And both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin, and we all know it, and we all know better. When Paul starts to say things like, circumcision. He's not just talking about a physical circumcision of flesh. He's quoting back to Deuteronomy 36 with with Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you might live. That number one commandment, the oneness of God, all here, here all the way back, Moses is saying, this can't just be an outward physical sign. This must be something that happens to your heart. The prophet Jeremiah will also quote God there and say, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is as they're going to come back from exile where they've disobeyed again and where they need to be brought back. And God's like, you know, now we just need to start writing Torah on their hearts. And in this passage, and then in passages with Amos and with Isaiah and others, and this all seems to be what Paul is drawing on, he's saying, and then the Gentiles come in. That's the promise, and that's the story. Paul will continue in Romans 3, and he'll say, "'For there is no distinction, since all have sinned "'and fall short of the glory of God. "'They are now justified by His grace as a gift "'through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus, "'whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement "'by His blood, effective through faith.'" He is telling us in all of one, two, and three, and four that all need help, that no one can boast. As Kevin mentioned last week, that a lot of Romans is about privilege and power and about actually saying that doesn't exist in Christ. Everyone sins, we all need rescue, Gentiles sin, Jews sin, we all know better, we all need Jesus. And Paul is trying to explain why, specifically, Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. And that's a big thrust of his argument here. So quick history lesson, ready? Before Paul writes this letter to Romans, He's been to Jerusalem another time. Acts chapter 15 talks of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. And when Paul gets to Jerusalem, there's a little bit of an uproar because there's been some rumors that he's letting Gentiles in and that he even brought a Gentile up to make a sacrifice and an offering. And some people are upset, so there's a council in Jerusalem and they are going to meet and try to figure out what are we going to do with this ragtag group of non-Jews that are hanging around this Jesus story. Apparently, Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit fell on them. I mean, what are we gonna do about that? That was only supposed to happen to the rest of us in Acts chapter two. How are the rest of these? That was just a Jewish event for Shavuot. Like, how is this thing happening at Cornelius' house? So they have a council and they get together and Peter's gonna say a few words and Paul's gonna say a few words and James, Jesus' brother, will listen. Certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So there was a group telling the Gentiles, you have to first convert to Judaism. And then when you convert to Judaism, then you can be saved in Christ. But you can't can't be in this Jesus movement until you first do circumcision after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, I imagine that is like the greatest understatement of the world, and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss the question with the apostles and the elders. So the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. They're like, this happened, this happened, we got to tell you a story. It's like beyond our imagination and understanding, but Gentiles are coming into the story. So here's what James says. He's the head of the Jesus-following community in Jerusalem. I've reached the decision. We should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from whatever has been strangled from blood. The ruling of the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 is that the believing Gentile was to be regarded as a righteous Gentile and was to be allowed in. But... It was also that Gentiles should not disregard the faith of the Jews and the practice of the Jews. And they need to obey the apostolic decree from Acts 15. They can't hurt their Jewish brothers and sisters, but they rather should walk in love as sharers in the promise of God through faith in Jesus. So they can't just walk up and go, hey, you guys, I got this great food that was recently sacrificed to a Greco-Roman idol. Would you all like to come and eat? Like, they're not to do that. Right? In order, maybe for the sake of table fellowship alone, of community alone, come together and sit with one another and eat. Right? Don't drink blood. Don't eat blood from an animal. Like, this is something, it's, it's, a, it's a step too far for the, your Jewish followers of Jesus. They're not going to be able to share community with you, so please don't do those things. And Paul has already been part of that conversation. He's already been to Jerusalem, and he already knows that this is the ruling for all Gentiles going forward. And that is gonna still be the ruling for the Roman community too. They have to find a way to share community. So he will still hold that the Gentiles need to do this. But he's also gonna have to tell the Jews in Rome, they don't need to do more than this. They don't need to do more than it. Paul's not asking the question, is God the God of the Jews only? He's not asking that question. He's not asking the question, is God the God of the Jews also? Of course, he's God of the Gentiles. Is he also God of the Jews? He's not asking that question. He's not asking the question, do Jews who become Christians remain Jews? He's not asking that at all. He's not in any way suggesting that a person who's Jewish isn't going to remain a Jew once they become a follower of Jesus. Do Jews who become Christians continue to keep Torah? He's not asking that question either. Of course Of course they're going to continue to keep Torah. He's not questioning whether or not the Torah is still valid for the Jew. He's not questioning whether or not believing Jews are Christians. He is asserting that all will be judged equally and that there's no privilege to be found. That your ethnicity does not give you a privilege or power in Christ. That we all fall short and we all need Jesus. Whether you have the Torah or not, you still need saving. So Paul is asking Is Israel's God, the one and only God, also the one God of the whole non-Torah-keeping world? And his answer is yes. God is God of all. God is indeed the one God who is creator and the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God is God of all, not only for the Jew but first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. God is God of all. Paul's gonna argue that the Gentiles coming to faith is evidence of God's covenantal faithfulness to Israel. So nothing is null and void. This is actually all these ragtag people coming in This is evidence that God is faithful. This is evidence that the covenant is being kept by God, that God must be the God of the Jew and also the Gentile, and to assert assert otherwise is to question God's very oneness. There cannot be more than one God. A central tenet of Judaism is monotheism. There is one God. There aren't other gods, and we're only to worship one God. There is only one God. And so God must be the God of all. Gentiles do not need to become Jews. Is that because Judaism or Torah is bad? No. Gentiles can remain Gentiles because God is the God of all humankind. And there is only one God, and God is one. And in Jesus, God has been faithful to God's covenant of Israel. Mark Nanos, in his book, Mystery of Romans, he's a Jewish scholar, and he's tried to explain the letter of Romans to so many of us. He says, God's oneness has been compromised if he is only the God of Israel. So if God's covenantal promises are only to the Jews then God's oneness has been compromised. Only, if he's only the God of the circumcised, only the God of Torah, and not also the God of the nations, not also the God of the uncircumcised, and not also the God of those outside the Torah. The Torah would not be established and all Israel would not be saved because the one God who called Israel and gave them the gift of Torah would not be the one God of all who believe in him, whether the Jew first or also the Greek. All of this, God must be God of all in order for the covenant to be true. In fact, at the end of Romans, Paul will say in Romans 15, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the ancestors and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is the point of it all. And so when Paul starts with Romans 1 and starts to give a long list of a whole bunch of do nots or things that people did. It's actually not a list of commandments. It's not a list of what you shouldn't do for the rest of your life. It is a list of the reality of what he has seen in Israel's story and what he has seen in the world around him that all have sinned and fallen short. And we all need saving. Now, a lot of times, these first few verses in Romans 1 have been used to talk about whether or not God is okay with same-sex marriage. And I just want to let you know, that's not what Paul is talking about. You can have that conversation and you can have that debate, but Paul's not talking about that here in Romans 1. In fact, it seems like what he is maybe referencing is a very theologically similar passage that's found in the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a Greek text that is, wasn't part of the canon, but people were listening to it a lot. It was Wisdom of Solomon. You can find it in the Apocrypha. And it was written in like maybe the mid-100s BCE, and it was making its rounds. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, particularly in these passages of the Wisdom of Solomon, you can find it on BibleGateway.com, etc., that same list is very, very similar. The same list of all the things Paul says, don't do this, don't do this. So he seems like he's sort of Chatting on that, at least pulling it, referencing something that they knew. But guess what that wisdom of Solomon List was doing? It was to reinforce the anthropological distinction between Jew and Gentile on the basis of true and false worship. Here Paul acknowledges the realities of the Gentile world in Romans 1, but then he turns everything upside down in Romans 2, declaring that Israel too is guilty. You can't just grab wisdom of Solomon and say, well, see, that's why the Greeks, the Jews, the Gentiles are guilty. That's why the Greeks and the Gentiles are guilty. No, 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 no. I'm going to take it and I'm going to continue to go on and say, yeah, and you too. All of us are falling short. So Paul will continue to teach through this passage and through this introduction that we are all together, that there is unity in our humanity and that we are all one in Christ. And he'll say, so don't brag. Those of you who have the Torah, those of you who have instructions, what becomes of boasting Romans 3, 27 through 29? It's excluded. Through what kind of law? That of works? No, rather through the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law through His faith? Through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This isn't the excuse to then throw out all of Torah and say, Torah is bad, and we don't have to do that. No, no, no. And he'll say, by no means, heaven forbid, Torah is good. It is important, and it is good. And it's actually, this, all that you see going on, this is the upholding of Torah. This is the fulfillment of all that is happening. Paul will continue to confirm the salvation history priority of the Jews by saying to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile child, because he's refuting that exclusivism when he adds that. And that seems to be what's happening in the rest of Romans 1 and 2. Don't get it twisted. None of you are going to be left off this list. Everybody's falling short and we all need help. Privilege and power is gone. We all sin. We all need Jesus. We can all be saved. And we are the new family in Christ. Now, even if you don't believe all of that, and you want to sit down and sort of nuance out all of the Greek and sort through what did Paul really mean and is he really just talking about cultic practices and is he really just talking about the Nephilim or is he really just talking about whatever happened with the golden calf and and all that other stuff, like whatever he's talking about, right? Even if that's not helping you, let me help you with a little pastoral interpretation, okay? Let's talk about rules of rabbinic interpretation. Christians don't know this because we've not been taught to be able to do this, but it was very common in Jesus' day, and Jesus does it. The first one, one of the rules of rabbinic interpretation of how you're permitted to sort through the text, one rule that I love, priority of command. So in Jesus' day, people said, there's no way you can keep all of God's commands at once. It's impossible. Do you guys think you can keep all of God's commands at once? You cannot, by the way. And we have stories in our Bible of people not keeping God's commands and still doing okay. For example, the midwives. They are told by Pharaoh, go and kill all the Hebrew babies in Exodus. And when they don't, and instead they save them, Pharaoh says, come come here, come here. How come all these baby boys are being born? These Hebrew boys are supposed to be killed. And they lie. They go, man, these Hebrew ladies, pop them and drop, Ladies go, and it's amazing, and it's incredible, and I don't know what to tell you, but we just can't, and they lie, and they are applauded for their first, the first recorded civil act of disobedience in the Bible, right? Rahab lies. Spies? What spies? I ain't seen no spies. And so the rabbis determined that it was okay to lie all the time. No. Whenever you preserved life. Because the preservation of life command, preserve another life, love your neighbor, love even your enemy, is greater than the command, don't lie. And so there might be times when the lying is okay. Honey, how do I look in this? Great. That would be, yeah? No, I'm just joking. Okay? Help, help your spouse. One time I was at a conference with somebody who's also in this room, and the speaker got up and was wearing, um, he was wearing clothing that did not, actually flatter him too much. And my friend leaned over and said, his wife does not love him. And I was like, "Eh, maybe, or maybe she thinks, yay, that's a good look. Okay. I derailed. So here we go. Priority of command. Jesus engages in this conversation. Jesus, what should we do? It is the Sabbath and we're not supposed to work, but a donkey has fallen into the well. Do we leave the donkey there to suffer or do we break the laws of Sabbath and do a whole bunch of work to get a donkey out? preserve life. Jesus, what should we do? It is the eighth day for my son and he is to be circumcised, but it's also a Sabbath. Do we break the law of Sabbath or we do we break the law of circumcision? And the rabbis went back and forth and debated all the time, what should we do? What's the priority of command? This is when they come to Jesus and they say, what's the number one commandment? They're asking him, how do you order it? And maybe Likely ninety nine percent point ninety nine point nine percent all the Jews said <clears throat> excuse me number one command hero Israel the Lord is our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your might but what's the second one Jesus love your neighbor as yourself no some rabbis like no second is Sabbath second is kosher third is cleanliness. And when you read then the parable of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus says that a priest and a Levite walked by the dying person, it could simply be that their priority of command had shifted. And they put laws of cleanliness above preservation of life, above loving neighbor. They're having this debate all the time. So I want to give you some permission to say, listen, if somebody wants to come, yes, but what do you think about... And as a pastor, I just want to let you know, nobody's ever come up to me and said, Danielle, are you loving God with all you've got this week? Nobody ever asked you that, right? They're like, what's your position on name hot topic of the day, right? Even if somebody wants to try to wrestle that out with you, can go, listen, maybe this, maybe that, but honestly, I got to love God, love my neighbor, love my enemy, care for the poor. And that issue that you want to debate with me is number 32. And preservation of life Is higher. And years and years ago, we all sat together as a spark board and we said on these issues, particularly issues of same sex marriage, we said preservation of life is the greatest command here. And we will love God and we will love our neighbor and we will love all sparkers. Anyone who comes, preservation of life is the greatest. And we can't, so even if you want to debate it, It's 32. Sort out all the other things first, and we can discuss that one later. The next thing I'd like to let you know another beautiful rabbinic interpretation, and this is something Jesus gives us and tells us we can do, that we are permitted to bind and loose. In Hebrew, it means to forbid and permit. If you'll recall the story of Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi, and we've told this story several times. Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and it's a pretty sketchy area. And they're like, who do you say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say, you know, Moats. And then he goes, okay, but who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of a dove, because that was not revealed to you by man, but by God alone. And I'll give you the keys Heaven. This has been used to sort of say, well, Peter is the one who will then be the first pope and pass this down. And he says to the community of disciples there, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This phrasing, binding and loosing, was known in Jesus's day and even today as the highest order of authority that you could have as a rabbi. So there are different levels of smicha, of rabbinic authority given. My friend Ari has the first two levels, but he doesn't have this level, because this is the highest one you can get. And Jesus gives it to us. And what this means is that you can determine in community with one another, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what do you forbid and what do you permit? So, can you have a glass of wine? Well, you might say it is forbidden to get drunk because that just leads to naked and ashamed throughout the entire Bible, so you don't want to get drunk. But you can have a glass of wine. Well, what if there's somebody there who's struggling with addiction? Well, then no. Preservation of life would be the higher command. And so we would forbid it in this circumstance, but permit it in this other. See how it works? People do this all the time. They just don't know they're doing it. Can I see a rated R movie? Yes to Amistad no to showgirls, right? I'm just saying you've sorted this out all the time. I'm just, that's not a from on high kind of thing. It is just to say, I not, I've actually only seen one of those movies and it's the Amistad, so I can't tell anybody else. I just know I'm not supposed to see it. So you bind and you lose. Kevin's laughing really hard. Okay. <laughs> Kevin has used this analogy for a long time. That a lot of us, we talk about the canon, our text, right? And that word means ruler. It's a rule. Now, it is beautiful and wonderful and inflexible, right? It stays and it's ruler and it measures. But the idea of binding and loosing is that within that rule, you can stretch and expand and make, you have authority as followers of Jesus together with the power of the Holy Spirit to make interpretations that say yes, We think within priority of command that we can loose this to say yes here. And we can forbid over here. And we wrestle those things out. And everybody is doing it and every church is doing it all the time. All the time. We forbid this, but we've loosed this. And you can imagine, I'm really, it's hard for me because I want to say like the examples in my head, but you can imagine even some of the hypocrisy that comes into this. We forbid same sex marriage, but we allow adultery. Or when it happened, we looked the other way, or we just had somebody go to counseling for three months and then come back. I mean, I don't know how it gets sorted, right? But binding and loosing requires a knowledge of the text, it requires a desire to love God, it requires a deep awareness that we've all sinned and fallen short and that God has given us instructions that give life and that God cares how we live, that God cares what we do and that we are to live differently as a result of our love for Christ, as a result of the fact that we've been saved. And Paul's going to get into all this. Does this mean you can just live any old way? No, absolutely not. It matters how we live, but in and how we interpret this for our day to day, with Jesus at the center, still caring one hundred percent for what Jesus says. This has to do with that you have been empowered to bind and to loose. Now, what Kevin likes to do, and I'm too cowardly to do, is he likes to also say that at some point you might stretch this so far as to break it, and if you break it, then maybe you're outside the bounds of what God has commanded, right? It's okay to lie. Is it okay to lie to preserve life? Yes. Is it okay to lie in order to, I don't know, you know, steal from my office? No. You've broken it at that point, right? What Paul wants to let us know in these first few chapters, that we all have sin. We all need rescue. We all know that we all fall short of God's glory. We all need Jesus. And Jesus saves us all. That the level ground in front of the cross is for all, that it doesn't matter what your pedigree is or your power or your authority. And that as people have come, because you see very different, it's hard for us to imagine this, this whole movement as it started, this Jesus movement, was predominantly a Jewish movement. Jesus was Jewish, the disciples were Jewish, and it was a Jewish movement for the first several chapters of Acts. But now something crazy is happening. And because we're all Gentiles, we read ourselves into the majority opinion of this letter. But that was not the case for Paul, who is a Jew and he's a Torah observant Jew and he's proud of it. And that's not the case for his audience. As the Jews have come back after their exile from Claudius, Claudius has died, and they've come back in. And here's a Gentile community of followers of Jesus who've been saying, oh, we've really laxed those rules regarding food sacrifice to idols. We started just behaving any way we want. Or may, and, and so Paul comes in, he's like, listen, let's try to sort this out. How do we get back together in unity? But it's not because the law doesn't matter, and it's not because you have privilege because of the law, it's because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And this is the story that he sees, and it's the ultimate oneness that he's experienced in Christ that brings all of us here, it is because God is one and God is the God of all that we all get to come. And it is because Jesus is the Savior for both Jew and also Gentile that Paul preaches this message. So the list and the difficulties in these first chapters don't have to do with who's sinning and who's not. It has to do with we're all sinning and we all need help and Jesus is here for all of it. Yeah? We're gonna invite the band, come on up. And we're gonna turn our hearts to the table. Jesus has given us a community in which we are invited to the table, the fullness of all of who we are, and we're invited to come here and to wrestle and to discuss and sort out our faith with fear and trembling And we are invited to sort out the priority of commands, how we're going to do this in community together, how we're going to do it here at Spark Church. We're invited to bind and to loose, but we're not invited to disregard God's call. That God is one, that God has called us to love God and to love our neighbor, all of our neighbors. And that we are to care for the life that, here is, that is here with us to care for one another's lives, to preserve those lives in our community. Jesus died that we might all be saved. This is the good news that Paul is not ashamed to tell us. That we've all been rescued and saved through the blood of Jesus. That he has covered over our sins, everyone's sins, through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And on the night in which he was betrayed, The Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. This is not our table, not our body, not our blood. This is Christ's table, and he invites us all. All who are hungry, come. All who are thirsty, come. The table's been prepared for you.